Well, we're going to continue in First Peter today. And uh, in our text, we're going to look at primarily hope and suffering. And perspective is, al- is always an interesting thing. Uh, a couple things happen today to me. We, we, we often have these just random little troubles or moments of suffering, I suppose, in our life. So this morning at four in the morning, our youngest daughter woke up just kind of shaking with a, with a pretty severe uh, fever, trying to get some Tylenol down her throat as she's kind of struggling with that. Um, so that happened, and then I get to church, going to do uh, a little bit more prep, and uh, Marsha Coop was kind enough to say, hey, your tire is like almost completely flat. Um, so trouble, trouble happens. Thankfully, a good Samaritan named Bob Stover filled it with air, and I think I can make it to a tire repair place uh, after today. But, you know, these are just little inconveniences in the scheme of things. This is not suffering on the scale of maybe what Peter's talking about in this passage, but he's going to talk about hope and suffering in the context of an opposing environment. And honestly, looking at the biblical text is always a little bit tricky because it's hard for us to feel the whole weight of what the author is trying to say because our circumstances are just so different from the original audience, and especially in terms of suffering here. Um, They were experiencing some real challenges, real persecutions, real threats to their lives. And in many other countries today, this is also the case, just not necessarily here. In other countries, there's believers today that are meeting in private for fear of imprisonment, torture, or dying in some other horrific way. Uh, just as an example, you can Google World Watch List to see which countries are experiencing the worst persecution for being Christ followers right now. Still, in our context, we have our troubles, suffering of our own. But, you know, none of our, none of our unbelieving friends are going to get thrown in prison today just because they know us as Christ, you know, we're Christ followers and they know us. They're not, that's not going to happen. So we do have a bit of a perspective check in terms of suffering. That said, when we do the right thing, and this is what Peter's going to tell us, when we do the right thing in our relationship with Jesus and how we live, we will have to endure some suffering. The world is infected by sin and is a broken place. Let's read the text together today. You can stand. It's in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. If you have a church Bible, that's 1,025. If you have an app, even simpler. Okay, we're going to read the text, 13 through 17. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live, because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Please go ahead and take a seat. So in this text, Peter talks about a number of things that relate to suffering, doing good, not worrying, not being afraid, worshiping Jesus as our Lord, and on and on. Uh, But first, in verse 13, Peter says this, Who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? 
So who's, who's going to want to harm you if you're eager to do good in your life? If you're living your life in a way that's honoring to God, you're seeking the good of yourself and others, the common good of your community, you're following the principles of Scripture, who's going to want to harm you? Well, this is a rhetorical question, and the expecting uh, resounding answer is nobody. Nobody's going to want to harm you if you're, li- you're eager to do good and you're living a good life. You're following God. Nobody. That said, we know that Peter's already affirmed the possibility that God's people will suffer, especially in chapter 1. And um, so he's making a point with this rhetorical question. Be eager to do good, obey God, and generally things will go well for us. Now that's true if we're talking about generally speaking. Have you noticed that? When you, when you order your life around Jesus and you follow Him in a personal way every day and you have a personal relationship with Him, you talk with Him every day, you let the Spirit check you on things and guide your life, generally things go pretty well. Now the key concept is generally, and Proverbs has a lot of things that it says that are not ironclad promises, but they're generally how things go. It's wisdom. And let's look at one of them right now. Proverbs 16, verse 7. When, when people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. Even their enemies are at peace with them. Here's an example. So think about the workplace or at school. If you're living an honoring life to God, generally, you can even get along with people that are challenging. Enemies, people that are making your life difficult. How? Not of your own strength, but when you let Jesus pour the power of His Spirit into you, fill you with His Spirit, give you the fruit of the Spirit, you'll have a greater capacity to be a person of peace, even in these challenging circumstances. So the book of Proverbs has all these encouragements and blessings which normally result from godliness and wisdom. The Sermon on the Mount, the same thing. And we know that a life of obedience is more peaceful than a life of evil. We even learned this last week. Pastor Brian helped us with this saying. Do you remember what it was? Your happiness is on your lips and what? Yeah, I can see a couple of the hands. Good, you remember that part too. So it's on your lips and it's in your hands. It's great. We have some personal responsibility to play here. Um, we cultivate praising God. We do good with our lives. And this can save us a lot of trouble. But here's the flip side of, a, of it, is a lot of times trouble can come into your life from living a life of trouble. You ever notice that? Sometimes it's, it's interesting how people, even Christians do this sometimes. They have a bit of a persecution complex, so they will they'll, um, make a poor decision and some trouble will come, and then because they're a Christian, they'll say, oh, I'm being persecuted. Well, perhaps, or perhaps you made some bad decisions and now trouble's coming. It's something for us to be aware of, right? We all have, have, have a propensity to do that from time to time, but we have to take responsibility to um, follow God's ways and not, not consider everything just opposition because we're Christians. I think of it this way, too. Um, for, for a while when I was younger, I was kind of fascinated with the idea of, of attorneys, lawyers. And think about a criminal defense attorney. When they have someone who actually is guilty, 
but they're still doing their job. Somehow they have this ability to just kind of flip things around. So the person who did wrong all of a sudden becomes the victim. And they're being persecuted. And somehow everything just gets flipped. Of course there are people that are innocent, and then these people help them, and that's great. But for those that are actually guilty, it still comes across as a bit of a a narrative switch. So doing good in our life pays off in our life and in the life of the community. But we have to be careful uh, how we think about that and with our motives and allowing God's Spirit to speak to us. Now, besides the rhetorical question aspect, there's also this eternal perspective at play. You see, no temporary suffering can actually harm us or our standing with God. And our inheritance with Christ is untouchable by the problems of life. So I think a final principle at work here in the beginning of this text is that living according to Scripture keeps us away from a lot of unnecessary problems and suffering, but it's no guarantee that we will be spared from all suffering. No guarantee. Do you remember this book? This was a popular book. I've got a picture here. Um, I don't know, a little over a decade ago, maybe you read this book, Your Best Life Now. Um, very well, very well sold. Number one on the, on the bestsellers list. Um, here's the thing. Very positive message, helpful principles. Um, but in terms of looking at the text today and thinking about the audience then and the struggles and the persecution that they had and then looking at our lives, how do these things hold up in other situations? For example, thinking of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ and some of those countries on the world watch list right now, are they living their best life now? Is there, by following biblical principles, is their life going to be their best life now? Or, more accurately, it might be their best life later or their best life in eternity, right? Because we're not guaranteed a life without suffering. Think about um, Kevin Durant, great basketball player. He's, he's with the Golden State Warriors. Full disclosure, I'm not really a Warriors fan, but I like some of the Warriors players. So I like Kevin Durant, I like Stephen Curry, I like others, but I'm, I'm actually a Lakers fan. So you know, that's unfortunate for you to hear. Um, Kevin Durant just got back from India. And when he went to India... He had said in some comments online, you could, you could read about this, he was, ex- he was excited to go to India and see the Taj Mahal, see all these palaces and just the grandeur and the, just the royalty of the whole situation. And he got to India and he was shocked. He was shocked at the poverty that he saw, of the poor sanitation, of the conditions with young children and families and homes and shambles. He was just shocked by all that. Now, why? I'm not exactly sure. I think... It's kind of common knowledge that there's a lot of challenges in a, in a place like that, but it caught him off guard nonetheless. And I think for us too, it can be out of sight, out of mind with suffering. We don't necessarily think about the suffering that our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing elsewhere until we see it. Uh, a good friend of mine is a medical doctor. He made the difficult decision a few months ago to be apart from his wife and his young kids for a little bit over a month, he went to Iraq and he was serving in a hospital there. And in this hospital, uh, it was really interesting, they had three, three kind of wards to the hospital. The first one was for coalition military forces who were injured. So all the people, all the countries, all the military personnel battling ISIS. So when they got injured, 
um, he would put them back together along with other surgeons and, and medical professionals. At least they would try. And then the next one would be um, civilian casualties, horrific things that he saw, but did a lot of great saving people's lives in that context. And then the third was ISIS fighters. So they would actually try to save their lives and then turn them over to be arrested. And uh, But here's the thing. He, he actually saw ISIS fighters calling out to Jesus for salvation on their deathbed as they're receiving the love of Christ from these doctors from all over the world. You know, pretty, pretty phenomenal. But my point being, extreme suffering. Christians in Iraq, extreme suffering, especially recently. Out of sight, out of mind for us. Not so much for him, living with that 24 hours a day for six weeks and then coming home um, back to a normal lifestyle where he lives. So there is suffering. Our suffering is not at the same level as some others, but there's still some things to learn here. Verse 14 acknowledges this reality of suffering even when we do good. This is what it says. Even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Peter wants to be clear that suffering might come our way even when we're living God's way. In fact, suffering might come precisely because we are living God's way. And I think we fail to grasp this sometimes and we just expect this trouble-free, uh, trouble kind of best life now life in our context. But Jesus even warned us about this. Look at John 16, 33. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus says we're going to have trouble, but take heart. So following Jesus doesn't mean a life free of trials or suffering or anything else like that. It doesn't mean that. Think about the story of Job. Job's friends made the same error. They assumed that Job's prosperity was the, great, was the result of his great godly spirituality. And uh, when adversity overtook him, they were certain that Job had done something wrong. So they quizzed him about it. They questioned him about that. In their mind, the way back to prosperity was to find the sin in Job's life and then get rid of it. This was also the view that the scribes and Pharisees had in the New Testament. And they linked material prosperity with basically with spiritual piety as well. Uh, Peter is basically saying this. That's not exactly true. The blessings don't stop when suffering begins. The blessings don't stop when suffering begins. I think we can all relate to this. A lot of our struggles in our context are situational, not necessarily persecution-related, but situational and obviously health-related at times. We live in a broken world, and there's a lot of, uh, because of sin, there's sickness. And I'm not talking about personal sin causing sickness. I'm just saying the world is broken, so there's a lot of sickness. And um, a lot of our struggles are along that line. I think about it in my own life in terms of suffering, and trying to think, is there some thread of blessing in the midst of this? In 2009, uh, Jen and I were expecting our first daughter. So Holly was going to be born in a few months. And uh, things are going well. We're excited. And I'm working full time. She's getting ready to have this baby. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I start having daily debilitating headaches. I had never had headaches in my life. I mean, I'd have a headache once in a while pop an Advil, and, and I'd be good to go. But these were 
they were so debilitating. I had worked at the same company for quite some time. I had over 30 paid sick days accrued. And I flew through most of those in four months because I had daily headaches for about four months. Couldn't figure it out. Couldn't get to the bottom of it. Suffering. Real suffering. Um, well-meaning friends and, and, uh, and other Christians would kind of do the, take the Job or the Jonah approach. Okay, so what, you know, what sin is in your life that we need to get rid of? Or what did God ask you to do that you didn't do? And then, you know, it's, it's so natural for us to think that way, but they're well-meaning. Here's the thing. Just as, as quickly as those headaches came on, eventually they just left. It's a couple months before the baby was, they just left. I can't tell you why. And here's what I learned. In that time of suffering, we can't get too stuck on asking the question, why? When we ask the question, why, it, it really torments us. But I, what I learned was how. You get through suffering because Jesus is with you. He's with you in it. He doesn't abandon you. So God doesn't always answer why, but he tells us how. It's with him that we can get through these things. And that's the blessing. We hate to admit this, but during the tough times of life, is when Jesus is most real to you and you experience him in some powerful ways. So he tells us how. We experience a blessing even in our suffering. And we will be rewarded. We will be blessed. It's just, it might not all be now. Think about, look at this picture. This is the dot in the line. I love looking at this. This is nothing new, but I look at this often because it's an easy reminder for me to keep things in perspective. The dot is your life. Your earthly existence, whether that's 25 years or 125 years. The line, the arrow means it keeps going. It goes and goes and goes and goes. And I think that sometimes the rewards that we get for enduring suffering or for whatever, for following Jesus in general, we might not experience those until eternity. There's always a thread of blessing in the midst of our suffering now, but we might not experience that full reward until eternity. So it's just a a helpful perspective check as we endure suffering. Peter also gives a warning in verse 14. He says, don't be worried, don't, don't worry or be afraid of their threats. See, Peter's concerned that when trouble comes, we're going to be tempted to be silent or to eliminate our witness for Jesus. And I think this probably hits pretty close to home for Peter because Peter's the guy who denied Jesus three times when he was under pressure. And then, of course, he was restored to Christ, which gives us all incredible hope. So Peter is clear on this. He says, if you're suffering for doing what is right, God will reward you, and you don't have to worry or be afraid. Point number one, we're empowered by Jesus to remain faithful and endure suffering. So we're empowered by Jesus when we put our focus on Him and our personal relationship with Him. He pours into us His presence, His gifts, the fruit of the Spirit, And we can endure. A helpful way, I think, to think about suffering and trouble in life is this. Who do we serve and who do we fear? Who do we serve and who do we fear? If you've got a really bad illness, do you fear that illness more or do you fear God more? What I mean by that is this. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And we know that God loves us abundantly. In Christ we are secure. We are forever loved. We're going to have an eternity 
with Jesus. So we don't have to fear trouble, whether it's illness or problems or real persecution like our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, because we fear God, and the God that we fear loves us. And He's got us, and we can trust in Him. So persecution and troubles force us to settle this question. Who do we fear? God or humankind or circumstances? Now the first part in verse 15 says this, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. As Lord of your life. When we worship Jesus as our, as our Lord, it means that we actually set Him apart as the leader of our life and the person who saves us. We, we worship Him. We revere Him as Lord. In the midst of suffering, He's always going to be there for us. And this gives us a real confidence because we know that Jesus is in charge, not the circumstance, not the suffering. And the second part talks a little bit about our responsibility when we claim Jesus as our Lord. It says this, 1 Peter 3, second part of verse 15. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. So when we make Christ the Lord of our life, our lives are going to look different to people who don't follow Jesus, and that's going to create some questions if we let Jesus live through us. Point number two, be ready. The world is watching and asking why. So the world's watching. If Jesus makes a difference in our life, they want to know why. So Peter didn't just stop at saying, don't worry or don't be afraid. He says, be active, be ready to speak out, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Now in this context, in this, in this passage in the Bible, he's likely talking about believers in a court situation after imprisonment. But I think it's reasonable to think that he also had in mind just our day-to-day lives and the questions that could come up from people who are friendly and people who are opposing us alike. They want to know, why are you the way that you are? Why do you live the way that you do? I notice a difference. But to be ready for people, we need to cultivate being ready. How, how can we do that? I think we, we need to prioritize uh, having quiet time with God. Many of us read the Bible every day. But what do we do after that? And what do we do during that? When you read the Bible, do you read the Bible? Or do you read the Bible with a perceptive ear to what the Spirit's saying to you? And then, do we talk to God throughout the day? Prayer can be simple, just an ongoing dialogue throughout our day to stay connected to God. When we do that, Jesus is going to work and live through us, and people are going to ask questions. We can also cultivate a thankful lifestyle. When troubles come our way, it's easy to get down, but by, by being thankful in the midst of everything we go through and praising often, we will be ready, we'll be ready to be used by Jesus. And we can also be natural in our witnessing. What I mean by that is there's lots of ways to tell people about Jesus. Some of them are more suited to other, this situation or that situation than others. But the best thing is to be natural. When you talk about Jesus with people, do it in a conversational way. Uh, talk about your normal life using examples from your normal life. That's going to come across much better than doing something kind of random or out of the box to try to get them to understand who Jesus is. That'll just come across kind of weird. So be normal. Be natural. Um, be a good listener. Listen to what people are actually saying when they're asking you questions about your hope that you have. Now here's, here's an important point. Faith in Jesus is personal, 
but it, I would say it's not private. Faith in Christ is personal, but it's not private. Do you agree with that? Maybe you want to hear a little bit more about what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. Of course, our faith in Jesus is personal. We have to make a personal commitment. We believe in Him. We put our faith in Him. We receive salvation. We have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. It's personal. But it's not private. Because when you know Jesus, it compels you to live in a certain way. In a way that causes people to ask questions about the hope that you have. If your faith was private... How many people would you and I lead to Jesus in our lifetime if our faith was private? It can't simply be private. We have to live out our faith in a public way. And to do this, we have to be in touch with that real hope that's active in our lives. That is the natural result of knowing Jesus. We will actually talk to people about Jesus. We will actually live our lives in a way that people notice there's something different. Many of you had a chance to go through that evangelism workshop that we did um, in the student center during City Fest. Here's a list as a recap. You might remember some of these. Different styles of evangelism. And again, these, this is not exhaustive. This is just six different ones that you can observe in Scripture. The idea is when you share your faith, you do it in a way that fits the way that God created you. And it actually brings you joy. So as an example, here's the direct way that Peter used, very straightforward, telling it like it is, asking for a response. And for some of us, that's the way to go. For others, uh, that terrifies you. You don't feel equipped to do that. You're more interpersonal or more in a serving fashion or invitational or you like to tell what God's done in your life, testimonial. There's many ways to work at, being an evan- uh, work at evangelism. And uh, as we live lives that are personal, but they're not private, this kind of stuff spills out and people ask about Jesus. Now, the text also communicates a few ways that that hope can function as we follow Jesus. And I want to say something about how hope relates to worshiping Jesus as your Lord is setting him apart. And then look at first verses 16 and 17 and close. But here's the recap. Christ is set apart as Lord in our lives by hope that is eager First one is eager. Hope that is eager. Christ is set apart as Lord in our lives by hope that is eager. This was the beginning of the passage today. We have this real hope in Jesus, and the result is that we are eager in living out our lives for our, not only our benefit, but for other people's benefit to know Christ. So are we apathetic about your, our hope in Christ, or are we eager to display it? Are we eager to display it? Point number two. Christ is set apart as Lord in our lives by hope that is fearless. So the first one is eager. The second one is fearless. Hope that is fearless. Peter tells us we're going to be rewarded when we suffer. We don't have to be afraid. And we should fear God, not man. We're fearless. Number three. Christ is set apart as Lord in our lives by hope that is prepared. We've been talking about this. Are you prepared to serve your community by living out your lives as a Christian, by telling people about Jesus. We answer people and share Christ with them in a way that fits how God designed us. And now, pertaining to verse 16, Christ is set apart as Lord in our lives by hope that is kind. When Peter says that we should be ready to explain the hope we have, he says there's a Christ-like way to do it. This is what verse 16 says. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience 
clear. Then if people speak against you, you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. So we're eager to do good. We're fearless in our faith and hope. We're prepared to share about Jesus, and we do it with gentleness and respect. See, as Jesus followers, we shouldn't be arrogant or boisterous or obnoxious in sharing our faith. We should be ready to answer people gently and respectfully when questioned about our beliefs or lifestyle or our perspective on Jesus. I think as an application, this continues to be tough for all of us. Social media is a bit of a love-hate thing. It, it kind of emboldens us that we're not face-to-face with somebody, right? So we have to be careful. People are asking a lot of questions on social media about us. And how we respond to that is important. If we just throw bombs at people and ruin any further chance of showing them how much God loves them, it doesn't work. So we have to continue to be careful with things like social media. But it is a, a great way to have a voice and connect with people. I've been encouraging you to sign up for the Alpha Course if you've never done the Alpha Course before. It's, a, it's an overview of the Christian faith, looking at the primary beliefs of what it means to be a Christian. So it's great if you're exploring the faith. It's also great if you've been a Christian for a long time, because it puts you in a setting where you can listen, listen to other perspectives, share your perspective in a way that's safe and respectful. Alpha's coming up in September. It's going to be during the same time period as Awana. So if you're not serving in that ministry and you'd love to check that out, please let me know. And also happening that evening is Grief Share. So many opportunities to serve and connect on, on Wednesdays. So Alpha cultivates this, this safe place to dialogue in respect and gentleness about the faith. And the other thing Peter instructs us to do is this. He says, keep your conscience clear. Keep your conscience clear. Obviously, that's about our personal integrity before God alone. As we live consistently with our knowledge and our understanding of who God is. It's you and God, your conscience. Um, It's a tricky thing. It's pretty easily to sear your conscience. I think uh, I kind of see this happening as we we go from little kids to, to adults. I think about my kids. So if my youngest daughter... She's two. If she's done something wrong, um, and she already has like this sense of that it's wrong, she'll just kind of give me a a mischievous look, mischievous look, and kind of smile or smirk or with a half look of shame. And like she knows she did something wrong, right? Her conscience is convicting her. If it's an older child, maybe one of my other kids, um, when they do something wrong, if they don't fess up to it right away, They feel that conviction. Their conscience is working. They haven't yet confessed it. They know they need to. They haven't done it. So what? So they get grumpy. So if I see one of my other kids just kind of acting out a little bit, a little bit grumpy, I'm like, okay, let's, you know, fess up. What's going on? But with us as adults, we have this capacity to sear, not only sear our conscience, but then once it's hardened, we can just take it and put it on the shelf and leave it there. Even as Christians, we can, we can try to do this. And then just go forward. So we have all these areas of our life where our conscience has been seared, and we can just put it on a shelf and walk away. And Peter's saying, don't do that. He's saying, our conscience is important. Have a a clean one. Do you realize that even people that aren't Christians have a conscience? Romans 2 talks about this. It talks about God's law being written on people's hearts instinctively, that they know right from wrong. But here's the difference. As a Christ follower, 
Your conscience has been transformed by God and His Word and the Holy Spirit and the way that the Spirit sensitizes your conscience. That's why it's so important to let the Spirit speak to you as you read God's Word and wash over your conscience. So, be careful. Each time we deliberately ignore our conscience, we harden our heart. And that's what Peter is warning us against. It's really tough to explain why you have this hope in Christ to people when you've hardened your heart to points of total hypocrisy in certain areas. And we're all guilty of this at different points. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we will never struggle with sin. But when we do struggle with sin, we know where to go. Hebrews 9 talks about this. How much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience, our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So one sacrifice for all time, for all sin. It's like we can walk around under this waterfall of forgiveness, perpetual forgiveness. He's paid for all the sins. So when we are convicted, we can bring that to light and experience forgiveness. It's interesting that earlier in 1 Peter, he's talking about living a good life so that people will glorify God, maybe even come to faith in Him. And then here he's saying, people are going to notice your life in Christ, and then they're just going to be shamed. So not everybody is going to respond to the gospel, but, but it's our job to live our lives for Jesus. The text closes with this in verse 17. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. So as followers of Jesus, we, are, we will experience suffering as we, love, as we live for Christ. But we have hope, and we have a real relationship with Jesus, and we have an eternal perspective. A few years ago, a pastor by the name of Tim Keller wrote an incredible book I recommend it for you if you're going through a tough time, some kind of struggle, trouble, illness, suffering. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. As we close, listen to, the, listen to what Tim Keller says in this book. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows Tasting the coming joy. Tasting the coming joy. It's all about perspective. We experience the suffering, but we have real hope. And we get to tell others about this real hope. And we get to live out this real hope. So that's our challenge today. Let's be people of hope and action. Let's not privatize our faith to the point that we don't live out our faith with the people that we love and care about. Let's be people of hope and action. Let's share Jesus in every way. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the ways that you're working in our hearts and minds as we work through uh, this letter of 1 Peter. God, give us your perspective. We thank you, God, that when we have trouble and when we suffer, we're simply following your footsteps, Jesus, and you're going to empower us to turn that for good, to be a blessing to others, to have an eternal perspective. God, give us a passion for your word. Help us to be committed to gathering together, to be empowered by your word, to be encouraged by one another. And God, release us into our our workplace, into our neighborhood, to shine for you, Lord, to give an answer for the hope that we have. And if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus, you'd like to 
talk after the service. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. God, we just commit this week to you. In Jesus' name, amen.